So uh, here's where we're going to start online. I need you to jump into the comments and let us know in the room. I need you to turn to your neighbor and answer this question. What is your favorite board game? Okay, what is your favorite board game? You guys remember board games? Okay, how, maybe you play board games or not. Uh, favorite board game, don't think about this, don't overcomplicate it. First game that comes to your mind, what is your favorite board game? Come on now, how, we, we don't have, 8.30, man, they were a whole lot more fun than you all. I'm just telling you that right now, okay? So um, for me, my favorite board game is whichever one I don't have to play. Um, so, <laughs> I am a blast at parties, y'all. Just so much fun. Um, but if you force me, I, I, probably the, the game that I have most of an emotional connection to um, is the game Sorry. Do you guys remember Sorry, the board game Sorry? Grandma Turner had that in her house, and just about every time we would go over there, we'd get the Sorry board game out, and we'd play that and just have a whole bunch of fun with that. But um, there, there are all kinds of games out there. This week, I came across the story, the history of, of a really famous board game, and it really um, just kind of like struck me how the story of this game really kind of tells the story of, where, uh, of how faith has been viewed and how faith is viewed in our culture these days. So it starts back in the year 1798, uh, believe it or not. And it was in, before Milton Bradley was even born. Uh, there was this board game from England. It arrived in the U.S., and this is what it was called. Um, it was called The New Game of Human Life. Now, in this game, acquiring virtues would speed you through the game, uh, while vices, sinful behaviors, would slow you down, and parents were encouraged to play the game with their children, and the game's main point was this, this is what it said, that life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death, God is at the helm, fate is cruel, and your reward lies beyond the grave. 1798, okay? Well, in 1860, Milton Bradley invented a very simple board game, and he called it the checkered game of life. And in this, there was the good path, and in the good path, it included things like honesty and bravery. Uh, there was also the, the difficult path that included things like idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led to wealth and success, and Bradley described it as, quote, a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. 1959, the Milton Bradley Company released a commemorative edition, and they called it the Game of Life, all right? I don't know if I've ever played this game in my life, okay? But it's the Game of Life, and this sold 35 million copies after it came out. It became very, very popular. And in this game, you earn money, buy furniture, and have babies. <laughs> Vice and virtue don't exist. And the winner of the game is the one who, at life's day of reckoning, makes the most money and retires to millionaire acres. In the 90s, Milton Bradley, uh, they, their, their designers, tried to make the game less about money. And so they started to emphasize good deeds like saving an endangered species or solving a pollution problem. But the only reward for these good deeds, cash, money. In fact, you can earn as much by winning at a reality TV show in the game as you can of saving an endangered species. In 2011, there's a new version that came out. And players can attend school, they can travel, start a family, or, or do whatever they want. And if they earn enough points, they can reward themselves with a sports car. But note, 
There is no end or last square to the game. You can stop at any time, and this is what the box says. A thousand ways to live your life. You choose. Values are up for grabs, and you get as many points for scuba diving, diving as you do as donating a kidney. And the description on the website says, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. I think it's safe to say that over the past 250 years, our values have changed just a little bit. And what we used to hold dear and what we used to say this is the most important thing is no longer what we say. I think it's easy and obvious to say that culture and viewpoints on life are shifting and have shifted and we live in a different world than we used to. Ethics in general and the outlook on Christianity specifically are different than what it used to be. In fact, many of you, if you're over the age of 30 and in the room, you've probably felt this take place. You've watched this happen as you've grown up and you've just kind of gone, what is going on here? In fact, experts have described a, a cultural shift and they've labeled it in three different ways. They say pre-1994, they, um, they called it the positive world. And this is where Christianity um, was generally seen as a positive force in our culture. Now, we're talking about in America, okay? So before 1994, Christianity is generally seen as a positive force in our culture. But then, in about 1994 to about 2014, we moved into what they now call the neutral world, uh, to where uh, secularism has taken enough hold of our culture that Christianity is no longer in a place of privilege, but yet... It's not disfavored or looked down upon just yet. But then in about 2014, about 2015, we entered into a new world that they now call the negative world, where Christianity is no longer viewed as a positive force. It's no longer viewed as even a neutral force. It is now something that is viewed as a negative influence on society, and the things and the values that we hold are no longer to be upheld. Researchers mark this date because it's in 2014 or 2015 whenever the Supreme Court uh, made the landmark decision to legalize and institute same-sex marriage. And that is when everybody said, now we are in a new world. And then if you start to track things from about 2014 to 2017, you can actually see that there is a rise in aggression against people who hold Christian faith. I mean, you say the wrong thing, you can be sued. Um, if you, um, you know, say the wrong thing, you can be canceled. If you hold to your beliefs, you can be attacked. Once again, if you're over 30, if you've got a little gray hair in the room, you've lived through this, and you've noticed this. If you're under the age of 30, you may not have even recognized that this is going on. Um, you may have not even be aware that this shift has happened, but we're here to tell you, and I'm here to tell you, it has happened. It has taken place. We are in a new world. And so as we move into part four of our series, Faith Under Fire, where we're working through the letter of First Peter, and we're asking this question, how can the fires of suffering, the, the fires of pain, how can they be something that actually ignites our faith and it doesn't extinguish our faith? We want to answer and ask a very simple question. And it's this, how do you respond to an increasingly negative view of the faith that you hold. 
It's an important question. It's a question that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to learn to answer in this day and age. And so we're going to look at 1 Peter 3. We're going to look at just a handful of verses here. And he gives us some incredible uh, principles for us to be able to follow in this world. So 1 Peter 3, verse 13, it'll it'll be up on the screen. And uh, it's in your notes. You can grab your Bible. Here's what he says. He says, now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't, say this next phrase with me, so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. He says, now, who would want to harm you if you're just going to go out there and do the right thing? I mean, why would people want to hurt you? Why would people want to harm you? Why would they be against you for just holding to what you believe is right, what is moral, what is good, what you believe God has asked you to do? Because normally, if you do the right thing, you experience good treatment, right? I mean, that's generally the way it goes. I mean, if you're someone who pays your debts, you're going to be somebody who's financially secure. If you're someone who is sexually pure, you're going to avoid things like disappointment and jealousy. Uh, If you're someone who practices humility and peace, you're going to have fewer enemies. If you're someone who has close relationships, that means you're going to have people to lean on whenever you experience difficult times. Normally, you just do the right thing. You experience good treatment, but exceptions do exist. Sometimes you can do the right thing and be treated wrongly. And in certain times and in certain places, the lifestyle that normally keeps believers safe actually puts us in danger. And what Peter is trying to say to his church is this, even if people treat you wrongly, do not worry, do not be afraid, because God will treat you right. He says, don't worry, don't be afraid. That comes from the Greek word phobeo. That's where we get our word phobia. And so everybody knows the phobias, arachnophobia, you know, all all the different kind of phobias that that are out there. And that's where we get this word. And he's saying, don't be be filled with fear. Don't be afraid. And at this point in history, as Peter's writing this letter, it's about the the year 64 AD or so. And and the guy in charge of Rome is a guy by the name of Nero. Here's a picture of one of his sculptures. And uh, so this is this guy. Let me just say, this guy, awful and disgusting. Now, if you don't know it, um, our worship services are rated PG. And so um, because they're rated PG, um, that means I can't tell you everything that Nero did. Because if I told you some of the stuff Nero did, we would go straight to NC-17 and everybody would be blushing, myself included. So let me just tell you a couple of things that he did and we'll maintain our PG rating, right? Um, like whenever he, he had a wife and he didn't like her. And so what he did is he went to his guards and said, just kill her. Seems a little extreme to me, but that's, kind of, that's just the way he decided he was going to take care of it. And so he had her executed, and so he went to this other woman that he liked. Her name was Papea, and uh, he and her, they got along pretty well for a bit, and they actually had a child together. Well, a few, few years after that, uh, Papea ends up pregnant again, and then she just starts going in at him, and, and, and she's arguing with him because she's like, you're spending too much time at the racetrack. Okay, and so he's gambling too much money. He's at the racetrack so much. Well, it throws him into such a fit of rage that he throws her down and kicks her in the abdomen so many times that he ends up killing her and their second child that she was pregnant with. He's just a vile and disgusting man. Well, about the time this letter is written, there's a fire that breaks out in Rome. 
And nobody really knows why the fire broke out, but most people believe that it's because Nero started it. And why did Nero start the fire? Because he wanted a bigger palace. And so he burned down all the surrounding houses, the neighborhoods, the shops, the community around him, and just lit it on fire because he's like, well, I just want a bigger place, and this is one way to get everybody out of there. Well, believe it or not, people weren't happy about that. And so they are upset, and they're, they're angry that they're every, they've lost everything. And so Nero's like, well, this has been a terrible political move. He should have thought about that beforehand, but he's like, what a terrible political move to burn down everything so that I can build a bigger house. And so people are mad. They want to blame someone. And so what Nero does is he says, I know who I can blame. There's this new upstart religion. They're kind of weird. They don't worship Caesar as Lord. They say Jesus is, is Lord. Um, they talk about eating each other's flesh. They talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. Um, they call everybody brother and sister. So they're kind of incestuous. He's like, let's blame this group of people for the fire. And so he blames Christians, saying they're the ones that started it. And what that does is that starts to open the gate for people to be able to say, we can go after these people. And people begin to say, all right, we're going to go after the Christians. We're going to begin to attack them. We're going to, begin to, uh, we're going to begin to persecute them. And it just kind of opens the door for this persecution that takes place. And what's going to happen is that Christians are going to end up being thrown to the dogs, thrown to the lions. There, there's a thing. Nero would actually do this. Is he would take the Christian women who had really long, thick hair. He would soak their hair in oil and in tar, and then he would put them on a stake, light their hair on fire so that he could light the, the, the dinner parties in his garden. It's opening the door to this incredible persecution that's going to happen. In fact, Paul and Peter are both going to be executed by Nero in a few years. Uh, Paul is beheaded because he's a Roman citizen, and so that's the quickest way to do it, and so that's the, the, how they took care of him. But Peter is actually crucified. And whenever Peter, they're about to crucify him, um, they're about to nail him down. He's like, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I am not worthy to die in the manner that my Lord and Savior died. So if you're going to crucify me, you're going to have to do it upside down, is what church tradition says. And so they crucified him hanging upside down. All of that is still to come. Mass persecution has not worked its way in yet, but these churches are already starting to feel the pressure. They know they're not living in a positive world whenever it comes to Christian faith. They know they're not living in a neutral world either. They know that they're living in this negative world, this negative view of their faith. And so they're being ostracized. They're looked at as outcasts. They're looked at funny because of their ethics and their morality and their faith. And what does Peter say to a church that is struggling in a negative view of their faith, with a negative view of their faith, in a negative world? He says, don't be afraid. Don't worry. I know it's getting rough out there. Instead of worrying, instead of being afraid, keep worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord. You keep honoring him as Lord. You keep saying that he is Lord and Caesar is not. You keep declaring that he is Lord over everything in your life. He's like, and you make him Lord. And then here's the thing. Here's what you've got to do. You've always got to be ready to explain why you have hope. Always be ready to explain why you have hope. It, be ready to explain to everyone. So to whom do we have to be ready to explain it? Everybody, right? So the antagonistic person at work, to the skeptic online, to your coworker, even to your mother-in-law, all right? You've always got to be ready to explain why you've got hope. 
He says, you've got to be able to explain it. That, that's where we get our word in the Greek. That's where we get our word, the apo- apologetics. It just means a defense, to give a reason. And so what Peter is saying to us is that every single Christian should be at least somewhat of an expert in apologetics. And I know that intimidates every single one of us, especially me up here as, as well. But here's the good news. Peter is not saying you've got to be ready to explain everything in your worldview. He's not saying you've got to get up here and be ready to explain everything that's in the Bible or everything that your church does or, or why Christians you know, say to be Christians but don't act like Christ. That's not what he says you've got to be ready to explain. The question that you and I have to always have to be ready to answer is a very simple question. It's a very personal question, and it's this. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus Christ. That's it. Why do you live the life that you live? Why do you have the motivations that you have? You defend your hope in Jesus Christ. See, we should be ready. If you're a Christian, we should be ready to speak at any moment to be able to answer that one single question. Why do you have the hope that you have? Why do you believe what you believe? Why are you living the life that you are living? And we're able to say that we should be able to speak about God's salvation through Jesus Christ and how he is redeeming the world through him. And that is what gives us strength whenever we face persecution and difficulty. That's what gives us strength to carry on whenever everything seems dismal. Peter says, be ready at any moment to explain why you have hope and why you have the hope that you have. And I think that if you were able to sit down with Peter and say, okay, hotshot, why do you have hope? Answer that question for me. I think Peter would probably, he, if I were him, I would give him one word. Resurrection. Now, I think Peter would sit there and say, you want to know why I have hope? Here's, here's the deal. I walked with Jesus for three years. I watched him perform all kinds of miracles. I watched him do all incredible kinds of things. I said some really brilliant stuff, some not so brilliant stuff. I, I, I did some crazy things, I, all kinds of things. But here's the deal. Here's what happened. I watched him die. I watched him get put into a tomb. And then three days later, we were having a fish fry at the lake. He was dead. Then he wasn't. You want to know why I have hope? That's why I have hope, because he is alive. He is no longer dead. He's no longer in the grave. And so for Peter, for, his, for him, his hope was anchored in the resurrection. You go back to chapter 1 at the very beginning of this letter, and he lays it out. In verse 3, he's like, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 21, he says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Peter, why you sold out? Why you all in? Why do you have hope? Because Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. Why aren't you afraid? Why are you willing to give up your life for this? It's not just because I believe something, but because I experienced something. Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. See, Peter's not just speaking from his theology. He's speaking from his experience. He's able to say, here's why I have hope. So you've always got to be ready to give an answer for why you have the hope that you have. But then Peter throws this in there. It's really important. Verse 15 again. He says, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer For doing wrong. When you give your answer, he says, do it with gentleness 
and respect. In other words, you're not angry. You're not just trying to prove a point. You're not trying to humiliate someone. You're not trying to put them down because disrespectful speaking doesn't win anyone. You can win a debate and lose a friend. You can be right and still do wrong in being right. Be gentle and respectful in how you answer and share. Why? Because it's not a contest. I love what the old theologian Dallas Willard said. He says this, apologetics is not a contest of any kind with winners and losers. It is a loving service. It is the finding of answers that strengthen faith. And so it should be done in the spirit of Christ. Now, church, listen to me. Our mission here at Corinth Christian Church is very, very simple. We exist because we want to win people to Christ. We want to train them up as disciples, and then we want to send them out to change the community and change the world. Apologetics is not about winning an argument. It's about winning a disciple. It's about making disciples. And so we don't go into these arguments with just a lot of heat and a lot of anger. We're going into them and saying, we, are going to, we want to help you see why you can follow Jesus. And so he says, make sure you're doing it with gentleness and respect. He says, keep your conscience clear so if people start speaking against you because of the way you live, you know, they'll be ashamed because they'll be like, man, I'm talking against somebody who's actually walking the walk here. He's like, live this way. Live in such a way that if people speak against you, they're just ashamed. Church, here's the thing. In this negative view world, uh, in this negative world, in the view of Christianity, at some point in your walk with Jesus, this will happen to you. People will criticize you for how you live your Christian faith. You're going to forgive someone who wronged you. And there are going to be people out there that are going to go, why would you do that? You shouldn't do that. I mean, you know what they did. They harmed you. They hurt you really, really bad. I mean, you shouldn't forgive them. Well, that's what I do because I'm a Christian. Well, that's dumb. You're going to say that you believe that sex outside of marriage is sinful and that you believe that you need to hold on and hold out and wait until God has blessed you with a spouse and that you're married. And people are going to go, well, that's this old-fashioned fuddy-duddyism, and who, who even believes that anymore? That doesn't even work anymore. And you're going, well, this is what I believe Jesus called me to. You're going to be generous with your money, and people are going to go, don't you realize that if you took that 10% that you're tithing, and, and you took that out, and you put that into an IRA, or you put that into a 401k, don't you realize how much more that, that would, you'd be able to retire with? Wouldn't that be more financially sound? It's like, well, I believe this is what God called me to do. You're going to have a time whenever your kid's going to have, they're going to schedule a practice on a Sunday, and you're going to be like, nope, this is an important day for us, and we're not going to go. And they're going to be like, well, but your kid could be really good at this if they would just, you know, sacrifice. And you're like, he's four. <laughs> but this is important to us. You live your life in a way so that whenever people see the good life that you're living, whenever they, they criticize you, they're, they're ashamed. People criticize what they don't understand. Happens all the time. And so whenever you're experiencing this, this is what I just want you to see. People aren't critical the way you live because you're wrong. People are critical the way that you live because they know they're wrong. And this is just what we do, whether you're a Christian or not. Whenever we see someone doing the right thing while we're doing the wrong thing, it causes us to do one of two things. We either change or we criticize. And I'll just let you know, uh, criticism is a whole lot easier than change. 
He says, so live in such a way that whenever this happens, people will be ashamed that they're actually criticizing you. So how are we going to do this? Let me give you just three real quick application points here, all right? How are we going to be people who are living in such a way? How are we going to do this? So here's the first thing is you got to walk the walk. That's the first thing. Your mama, your grandmama, your great-grandmama, your great-great-great-grandmama always said this. Actions speak louder than... Oh, come on. Your grandma would be so ashamed of you right now. Like, seriously, let's do it again. Actions speak louder than what? Thank you. She is so proud of you now. But we all know this to, to be, the, be the case, that our defense, whenever it comes to why we believe what we believe, and our defense, whenever it comes to our hope, begins not with right answers, but with right living. And so we make sure that we are walking the, the walk. If you jump up there, we don't have time to run through them all, but in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3 there, Peter lists out nine different qualities that we're supposed to be doing. I mean, he's just like, bam, 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 sympathize, love, tenderhearted, all these things. He's just throwing these things right there. He's saying that our lives have to match our hope. And the way that we live is a part of our defense. And so if you're out there trying to have argument with our words, with your words, but you're not walking the walk, here's the problem, my friend. You're hamstringing yourself. You're cutting the ground out from underneath you because they're like, there's nothing different about you than me. You're just saying a whole bunch of intellectual mumbo jumbo. Let me see it in how you live. You got to walk the walk. But then the second thing is, is you've got to anchor your confidence. We're going to anchor our confidence because the Christian faith is not built on a foundation of philosophy or a code of ethics. The anchor of our faith is one fundamental fact that the, that the, that the tomb was empty. That Jesus walked out of his own tomb under his own power and that is the ultimate apologetic. There is no argument against it because if the resurrection didn't happen, then that means this, Christianity is one of the world's and history's greatest and most cruelest hoaxes to ever exist. We're not just wasting our lives worshiping him. We're living a lie. But if Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, all bets are off. Or maybe I should say all bets are on Jesus. There's an old saying that no one ever bet too much on a winning horse, right? Well, the winning horse is the white horse that Jesus will ride in on to save his church someday. That's the horse to bet on. Anchor your confidence. Here's the last one. Prepare your answer. So we're going to walk the walk. We're going to anchor our confidence, but then you're going to prepare your answer. You have to answer this question. I can't answer it for you. Why do you have hope? Why is it that you have hope? Why are you a Christian? You have to come up with your answer. I'll give you some simple guidelines to kind of start and just kind of get you there uh, because it can be super short. It can be super simple. I mean, you can just go with something as simple as this. Why are you a Christian? Well, it's, this, this is why. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and then he raised from the dead. And that's all you got to say. But what about, what, what about the Bible? Isn't this thing full of contradictions? And is it really even trustworthy? You know, it's like, you know, I don't know, there's smarter people than me out there, but here's what I do know. I believe Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Yeah, 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 I hear you, hear you, hear you. What about the Crusades? I mean, that was like awful. I mean, how could the church do something like that and like go out there and then it's like, I don't know, kind of feels like an adventure missing the point. Yeah, doesn't it? Kind of does. But uh, here's what I know. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Yeah, 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 but why are there so many hypocrites? Isn't the church just filled with like, yeah, I hear you, man. Here's what I know. Jesus died on a cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. You want to know why I have hope? That's why. You want to know why I can, you know, sit there with a spouse that is, that is dying and not just be a total incomplete basket case, just a little bit of one? because I believe in hope. You want to know why I can forgive my ex-husband? You want to know why I continue to hold out hope that my prodigal is going to come home? Do you want to know why I was able to overcome addiction? Do you want to know why? It's because I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. See, ultimately, we defend our faith by proclaiming the gospel. That's where it all starts. That's really where it all ends. And if you want to be ready with an answer for why you hold on to hope, You'll never go wrong with the good news. Jesus Christ died on a cross, and then he raised from the dead. And so the bottom line this morning is this. Even in the face of hardship, you can hold on to hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus can defeat death, then that means there is nothing too difficult for him. And so no matter what hardship you face, no matter how the culture changes, no matter where things are, no matter how people view you because you're a Christian, you can hold on to hope because your hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's my challenge to you this week is to spend some time. And if you've never spent time answering this question, very simple. Why do you have hope? Spend some time, prepare your answer. Block out some time in the morning and just ask, and just pray about this. God, what is it about this? Why do I have the hope that I have? And you prepare your answer so that whenever somebody asks you, why do you live the way that you live? And you have something that you can go to pretty quickly. Uh, back in 1971, there was a, a song that was written, and that was a long time ago, and I apologize for saying it was a long time ago, but it was also 50 years ago, 52 years ago, so uh, deal with it. But uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote, wrote a song, and this may be a song that's familiar to some of you all in the room, and the, the name of the song was Because He Lives. And it's a great old song, and uh, that song was written in the midst of social upheaval, threats of war, betrayals of national and personal trust, and this is what Bill says. He says, it was into this world at such a time that we were bringing our third little baby, Assassinations, drug traffic, and war monopolized the headlines. It was in the midst of this kind of uncertainty that the assurance of the lordship of the risen Jesus Christ blew across our minds like a cooling breeze in the parched desert. And holding our tiny son in our arms, we were able to write, how sweet to hold our newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. How do you face uncertain days? How do you hold on to hope? Peter tells us in verse 18. Because Christ suffered for our sins... Once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death. 
but he was raised to life in the Spirit. It's because he lives that you can have hope. So today, if you've never put your hope, if you've never put your faith, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you want to have something that can anchor your life no matter what it is that you face, it is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is your anchor. And if you've never made him Lord and Savior of your life, you've never confessed your sins, repented, if you've never experienced the blessing of baptism, today is the day to begin that. And if you're watching online, you can visit the website that's on the screen. If you're in the room, you can grab that connection card and say that you're ready to begin a relationship with Jesus, that you're ready to say, even in this world to where people may have a more negative view of Christianity than they used to, that you believe that he is worth giving your life to and that he alone is worth living for. Do not delay. Make your decision today. So God, this morning... We pray that we would have a steadfast hope. In the face of difficulty, in the face of a culture that is changing, help us to feel like strangers and exiles in this world. And help us to see that no matter what happens around us, that what you have done and what you are doing is still, is still worthy of building our lives upon. For those of us, Father, who don't feel like strangers and exiles in this land because we've become too comfortable with the culture and our lives don't match up with what you have called us to do. I pray that you would shake us today and that you would grab our attention and call us to walk the walk and to leave the things of this world behind and to say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it may cost me. For my friends who today who have walked in maybe with a little bit of fear and worry because they've seen the changes that have been taking place. Anchor their confidence in you and you alone. And help us to remember that because you conquered death, so will we. And that one day you are coming back. But until then, help us to walk the walk. To be ready to give an answer. And to live lives filled with hope. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.